Well, hello, psychonauts, scientists, and spiritual shamans alike. Welcome to this podcast where we'll take you on a mind expanding journey like no other. I'm your host, James Bunn, and I'm thrilled to introduce you to the Changa podcast How to Become a Psilocybin Facilitator. Welcome back, everyone, to the Changa Institute podcast of How to Become a Psychedelic Facilitator. So I'm here today with a very special guest uh, who I'll allow to introduce herself in a quick moment, but just wanted to say a big thank you to everyone that's been sending in your questions to the podcast and for everyone engaging. We really didn't think it would get as big as it did as quick as it did. And now we're really pleased to see yeah, lots of people listening in from lots of different countries. So please feel free to you know stay in touch and reach out and send your questions in. But without further ado, I would like to introduce our guest today. So our guest goes by the name of Evacheska DeAngelis. And yeah, I guess rather than me do the full introduction, I'm going to pass straight over to you, if you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for the introduction. I do go by the name of, it is my name, so that's very convenient. My name is Evacheska DeAngelis. I am an integrative counselor, somatic practitioner, shamanic practitioner, and psychospiritual guide. I am based presently in New York City, although I kind of do work all over. And my practice is really predicated upon helping people connect with all of the different parts of themselves and integrate them into their present self, whether that be through various psychotherapeutical methodologies, shamanic practices, meditation, breath work, or medicine work as well. Thank you so much for that. Yeah. And we'll kind of delve a little bit deeper into that in a minute and why that's so relevant to our uh, trainees that are going through the Oregon psilocybin facilitation training. But I guess just to sort of go back to your background for a second there is it It feels like everyone enters this, and I'm going to use the term psychedelic space, seems to come from various different industries and different backgrounds. In a way, I feel kind of strange being one of the few people that's been working in there since I graduated. But I'm aware that you, prior to working in this space, you have a very successful career in fashion, skincare and cosmetics, which obviously still supports people's health and development. And all the parallels go along with that with the psychedelic space. But I have to ask, I guess, why... Did you come to this space? Like, how did that transition take place? Yeah, can you get into that a second? Yeah, I'll I'll do my best to keep it short, James, honestly, because I could probably talk for an hour just on this topic. It was really a sort of a homecoming for me. Both of my parents are fairly prolific psychotherapists in their own right, and both of them have had their own experiences with varied levels of psychedelic medicine work in their lives and also in their careers. And so my pendulum just swung really far in the other direction. I was like, I am going to go be successful in corporate America, even though like very deep down, I like was always really connected to psychology and, and helping people grow and heal. And I really actually found that in corporate America. I was an executive leader at a really young age and had teams that, you know, in the most humbling way, often told me that they loved working for me. I'm quite close with many of them still. And I studied a lot of behavioral psychology you know, in those years, just really understanding how to influence people to, at that time, buy, right, wallet share, whether it was skincare or fashion. And so much of it really came down to not just like extrinsic, the external, but the internal and how people really felt about themselves. And I noticed that with the people that were on my team in the office, and then of course, with our consumers. And, you know, on the side, Of course, I was leaning into a lot of meditation, a lot of personal development, spiritual development. I felt a little bit closeted. Um, Honestly, I was definitely closeted with my psychedelic experiences and psychedelic work. And I I was recruited from a wonderful job in California to a wildly wonderful job in New York. 
And at a very young age, I, I was 30. And I found myself in my downtown Manhattan high-rise office feeling really, really conflicted about my life because I felt like there were just parts of myself I could not share in that space. And I started to get like this little voice in my head saying like, go back to school and study clinical psychology. And I was like, uh, no, 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 I'm not trading my income for, you know, like student debt or any of that kind of stuff and kept trying to talk myself out of it. And it just kept getting louder and louder and louder. And, you know, along that way, I also started to lean into like more esoteric teachings and shamanic work and really found an alignment with that. And so both of those things started getting so loud, I really could not ignore them anymore. And so eventually I, I left and took a really big jump off of a very high cliff to follow my calling and go back to school and, and lean into kind of the wide array of supporting people's healing journeys, as well as, of course, my own. And that's how I got here. <laughs> that's fantastic. And I mean, we, we all do love to rebel against our parents' wishes for a time, uh, you know, not follow the, the track that maybe most sort of suited to them, what they were expecting. But it seems like that's exactly what you did. But I guess quickly before moving on from sort of that, that past role, it would be a crime for me not to ask you about the term psychedelic within the fashion industry. Now, <laughs> I'm aware that that is something that kind of, when I say psychedelic fashion, it instantly conjures up images of tesseracts, tie-dyes, trippy images, that sort of thing. And I'm wondering about, do you think that the connotations that that potentially brings up with 60s counterculture is still damaging the increasingly now medicalized psychedelic space? Or do you think that that art style has catapulted an otherwise quite niche psychoactive into the public consciousness? I love this question so much. I mean, you know, we're not in video, but we are together. And you can see that I've got like a lot of neon and mm. a lot of plants on my sweater. It looks great, by the way, guys. I know that no one can see this, but it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I really appreciate it. It really is one of my favorite sweaters. But I, you know, I don't think it quite has the stigma that it once had. Although, frankly, I don't think a lot of people who wear tie-dye know that there's a psychedelia homage, if you will. You know, tie-dye has become so trendy. I, I mean, especially when COVID hit and everybody was wearing like the tie-dye two-piece sweatsuits, like that just became so chic. And then we started to come out of the pandemic and people were pairing it with high heels. And so I don't really know that people are aware from the places and the roots from which these patterns and, and these colors really come. But what I find quite fascinating is that, you know, we attest it to the 60s and the psychedelic movement in the 60s, when actually these colors, you know, these neon bright colors and these vibrant images and, you know, the tesseract and the sacred geometry, these have been documented in entheogenic and psychedelic experiences for thousands and thousands of years with indigenous communities, right? And same with, you know, psychedelic music, like heavy drum beats and like, you know, lots of rhythmic experiences. Of course, all of that was part of it too. And so I'm taking like a long route to answer your question, but I would say that nowadays, likely people are not even like super aware. I think even mushrooms themselves are trending as like designs and patches. And I don't know that like, definitely like people who know, know, but people who don't know, don't know, and they don't really feel like they need to know. And they're just kind of wearing fashion, right? I don't think there's like the word psychedelic attached to the print, if you will. No, definitely. Definitely. You know, I see my own mother wearing things with sort of toadstool mushrooms on. And I'm thinking, I don't, I don't fully think you know where that's sort of coming from. But uh, <laughs> the less you know is probably the better in that case. So I'm, I'm fully with that there. Meanwhile, 
mm. my father was wearing something with that it would be very deliberate <laughs> well we actually we had your father on the uh, on the show previously so those that don't know the previous episode to this podcast which is just the one released before this one was with richard and he was uh, he what well, he is uh, Francesca's uh, father so yeah there's sort of a, a lineage going on in the podcast at the moment quite a lot of our and you know i do want to actually bring back to fashion in a minute so i, I might bring that back in a moment but I guess what's probably useful for the audience to know is, so you, you've come from this high-flying lifestyle of working in this industry and things like that. You made this transition to moving and taking this leap, as you said. I guess, yeah, can you explain to us what that leap was? I mean, I, I'm so, somewhat aware of it through my talks with Richard, but can you explain to them what the big leap was or how you did that transition? Yeah, I mean, so when I finally got up the, up the guts to leave corporate America, I decided to go back to school and study clinical psychology. And also, I found myself through various friends at the time, you know, like leading and facilitating very informally psychedelic journeys for people who needed space held. And I've always kind of been an inherent space holder. I grew up, like I said, you know, with two psychotherapists as parents. And I, you know, I used to sit on my mom's lap when she held group therapy circles as a child, which I think lent to my being able to facilitate in corporate America and then transition very quickly. But I, I really found that in my own journey work, I was missing something. And there was like a level that I, I felt called to go deeper. And that's when I found ayahuasca. And then through finding ayahuasca and beginning to do such deep work within myself on a level I hadn't with MDMA or LSD or psilocybin, I got a call to, you know, go down more of an esoteric metaphysical shamanic path as well and start to study plant medicine in a very different way. And so I was kind of parallel pathing the studies in clinical psych and also in trauma work and in somatic therapy with plant medicine and more indige indigenous studies. Hmm, fantastic. And, and yeah, so you touched on something there that I want to get into for a second, which is actually something we haven't really talked about on the podcast up until this episode, which is usually we f focus around the topic of psilocybin, because that's obviously the, the uh, medicine of choice that people are using in Oregon. But let's talk about ayahuasca for a second. So I hear that you worked for the Ayahuasca Foundation, which I just wanted to give a, a shout out to those guys for shepherding so many amazing individuals such as yourself to work in this space and whilst also honoring the Shipibo peoples in a very culturally sensitive way. Yeah, something that they do and that you probably do through your practice, I want to get your thoughts on this in a minute as well, which I really appreciate, is to give the person who wants to use this medicine, to ayahuasca, some homework. Now, if you are anything like me at school, just the word homework fills you with dread and it's sort of like, oh God, what's this? But this is a different sort of homework. It's much more things like intention setting and the diet involved in the process and things like that. So anyway, my question to you relates to, let's say the students going through the Changa Institute uh, as the psilocybin facilitates, of course, is there a value in setting homework for people that want to undergo a psychedelic experience or things to do prior to their session? Absolutely. I um, I just want to clarify really quickly. I didn't work for the Ayahuasca Foundation. I took some courses through them and I'm very grateful to them for, for their offerings and for introducing me to the lineage under which I still study in the Shipibo Konibo tradition. But yeah, I know and all of my clients, if they're listening to this, I'm sure they'll probably laugh because they know that I talk about homework a lot. I also really had a disdain for homework in school. <laughs> Even as recently as my clinical psych degree, I don't love it. <laughs> I found a way to love it, right? Because what I have learned through the plants is that sometimes we have to do things we don't want to do and learn how to want to do them. And with the homework, with any psychedelic experience, I think it's incredibly crucial to lean into the homework. I think with all of this work, you get out of it what you put into it. 
And so the preparation is very important and the integration is very important as well. And so, you know, much of what I've learned on the path of learning how to facilitate ayahuasca and continuing to go down that path with the Shipibo, Konibo people, I apply to my clients who are working with psil- psilocybin as well. No, that's great. And I, I guess because why I'm interested in this as a topic is because that was your history. That was what you, you did. That's how you got to where you're at now. But I want to talk a little bit about uh, Soda Luce. And I, have I butchered that? Is that okay? No, that's correct. It's Soto Luce, it's Italian, and you got it right. All right. Well, well, fantastic. Well, before I say anything that's out of term, I, it'd be great to hear from you about Soto Luce and what it is that you do and, and the services they provide. I'm sure the audience would be really interested in that. Absolutely. Temple Soto Luce is an organization that I founded that's really predicated upon growth, healing, and expansion, and, and whatever that means to whoever is coming in, you know, that can be very subjective. And very different. And so I've got clients who have complex PTSD. And I have clients who have trauma with a lowercase t. I have clients who are executives and who are looking to weave consciousness into their executive leadership practice. And people who are are really just looking to do more integral parts work and kind of everything in between. I feel very lucky for the array and my clients span from the ages of 22 to 83, I believe wow. right now. <laughs> yeah, I feel quite fortunate. And so we offer a lot of different things. We offer meditation ceremonies, sound ceremonies, integration support, both for psychedelic experiences, but also just integration human support being an integrated human and what that means a lot of somatic therapeutic work nervous system work and basically anything that supports what i like to call the journey back to self i did not coin that phrase but one that i use a lot and it's really just continuing down this never ending ever winding path of learning who we are over and over and over and and really supporting our hearts and our souls and our spirits and our psyches and our bodies as we go through all of the transitions of life. And, you know, in in America, you know, perhaps also where you're from, we're not really taught to connect with all of those pieces of ourselves and allow them to be present and give them space to emote. And I really believe that that is incredibly crucial in this human experience and helps us be more grounded and more regulated. No, totally. And, and yeah, that is the same where I'm from as well. In the UK, we're not particularly good at that either. But <laughs> away from the UK a little bit and moving back to the US. Now, I guess most of our audience are from the beautiful state of Oregon, which I've got the very lucky pleasure of visiting this summer. Really excited for that. And they're now operating in this regulated psychedelic market or this industry. And obviously, any new industry or anything that's evolving, that's sort of trailblazing, it has a couple of teething problems, considering it's only just been rolled out over a year. But I guess... For your purposes, what would it mean to you and your business if you were able to run similar programs in either New York or California as they are currently running in Oregon? How would that change your business? Yeah, I mean, you know, I have so many clients that I work with in integration space. And, you know, I am a trained psychedelic and entheogenic facilitator. But because, you know, we're, we're not allowed to do that here, it's very limited, right? And so, you know, I think it would open things up a lot. I know that there is legislation in New York, you know, working on, on the legalization of this. And I also know that it's been decriminalized in a very tiny, tiny part of California in Oakland, which is really exciting. But yeah, you know, I, I do believe that these medicines, psilocybin in particular, it can really open up so much for people in, in healing spaces and expansive spaces and, and connecting, you know, with themselves and 
to me, one of the most important things to connect with, which is this planet. I'm a deep animist, and I really, really believe in, in the importance of using the earth to help us heal and co-regulate our nervous systems. And then, of course, you know, like with other people and, you know, just broad culture at large. So, yeah, I, I would really love for that to be something that happens here. And also, I have a little bit of trepidation around it, you know, like once there are laws in place then we have people getting involved like big pharma which i'm like not super stoked to see <laughs> how you know how many of these companies are trying to put patents on these medicines that have been around for far longer than our modern day culture has and carry far much more wisdom than most people have even taken the time to learn about and i do think that's why being a medicine holder or medicine keeper for a lineage and and being entrusted by a lineage to serve is something that's really, really important in this space as well. And is something that many standard psychologists, you know, are not necessarily paying enough attention to. Mm, definitely. I mean, I think that we have to quote, not super stoked as understatement of the century when it comes to <laughs> the fear of big yes. pharma. But no, I completely agree. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, that is obviously a concern. I'm trying to be more. gentle, you know, like. <laughs> very diplomatic, very diplomatic. Now, I guess, uh, yeah, I mean, if you were able to run this domestically in, in different places in the US, it would be fantastic to do. And Oregon has really been given a rather unique opportunity to be the, the leader in the US in this space, as sort of similarly it was with cannabis and things like that. So it's, it's a really exciting opportunity. And, you know, maybe someday there is a Changa Institute, New York, Changa Institute, Oakland. And, uh, you know, we can, we can delve into that another time. But I guess for now, I mean, you know, we've spoken a little about what would need to potentially change in order to make this happen. If you had some sort of almighty power to change the laws in your state and you, you really wanted to change one thing specifically, is there a particular area like, you know, obviously there's things like access, you know, making this a medical or legal route pathway to access this uh, medication. But is there sort of like anything about the whole process you'd quite like to see changed or improved? Wow. Such a great question. Such a great question. Thank you for asking that. I, I really actually, I think... One of the biggest things is, you know, you said access, but I think you may have meant it in a different way. Access, gosh, how do I say, you said diplomatically, and now I'm trying to be as diplomatic <laughs> as possible. All in my previous corporate America brain a little bit here. But um, when I go to these places to sit myself with medicine, you know, out of country, even like what I notice is it's an upper middle class to upper class fairly Caucasian experience. And that creates a lot of pain for me. There have been circles that I have sat in where if there are any, you know, BIPOC people in the circle, it's because they're my friends and I brought them, not because they're part of the, the standard demographic that arrives. So I think first and foremost, access to different communities is really important. I also think sliding scale, you know, affordability is really, really important. And then, you know, I've touched on this already, but homage and understanding to the indigenous communities that have been carrying these medicines for much longer than we've been a part of them. I think that's really, really important. And so how that weaves in to the legalization, I'm not entirely sure. I do think another piece of it is like many of the laws that are, are on the docket are focused specifically on either MDs or, you know, PsyDs or PhD doctors. And there really needs to be a spiritual component to this. You know, people who are taught and gifted by a specific lineage, how to be a medicine keeper and how to hold it that way, because the spiritual aspect of this is 
is, I think, a huge part of it, right? The consciousness aspect is a giant part of it. I know it has been for me. And then the other piece of it that I would say is integration needs to be like a must-have for any of these organizations. It's not a nice-to-have. It's a must-have. You know, a, a ceremony is not a magic bullet. It's not a magic pill. I see a lot of people, I had someone today say, oh, I heard it's like 30 years of, ser- of therapy in one night. And I was like, well, it can open a lot. And then those openings are created and you really need to support your nervous system and your heart and your psyche and your being after that. And so, you know, a focus on integration. And then lastly, I think at the very least, trauma-informed, at the very least, if not trauma-trained, and, and there needs to be a focus on harm reduction in these spaces as well. Yeah, totally. What you say there about sort of the magic pill thing that is very rife in this community is sort of, you know, you, this is 30 years of therapy in one and you can do this and you'll be healed immediately after. It does set these expectations for a lot of the clients that are going through this and a lot of the patients that are going through this that, oh, I, I didn't get better. Therefore, there's something more intrinsically wrong with me or there's something that is br- fundamentally broken. So they, it can be a it can be quite a toxic cheer pressure, which I guess is the opposite to peer pressure of like, you know, we all have to get behind this. We all need to, you know, support it. And, and you know, there are risks associated with psychedelic use as well. Yeah. So being conscious of all those is really important in that process and building an equity-based model for, for care as well. You say sort of there about medical professionals. Now, something that is really unique about Oregon, which I, if you'd asked me sort of five, six years ago, whether this would be the case um, from my legal perspective, I would have said no way, but it, it is, which is that basically the, the Oregon model or the, the way that it works at the moment is that medical training isn't a necessity, you know, having basic medical training is, but you don't have to be a certified MD or a doctor or a psychiatrist to deliver this. But what you do need is to have a real world and real life experience. You need to be able to show your certification through one of these schools that have gone through in Oregon. And I think that that practical element of things is actually very pragmatic and something we don't see in the rest of the world. You know, I work with lots of clients and companies in, in Canada, in Israel, in the UK, in Australia, and they've gone very much down the medicalized route. But the problem is, is that a doctor of seven years doesn't really have any additional information apart from how to respond to emergency situations than you or I do, in a sense. So it's a, yeah, it's a very strange sort of set up in that sense and i would be really open to sort of seeing more jurisdictions open with the oregon model let's say yeah i absolutely agree with that i really do and i'd like to add too that like you know i i think also like this is not it's not for everyone yep right whether it be as a facilitator or as uh, as we like to call them in, in the ayahuasca world as a pasajero as a passenger right as a client it's not for everyone and it doesn't need to be it really doesn't. And it can, this medicine work is so beautiful and can be quite opening and it can be quite dysregulating for the nervous system. And so I think that like, it's so important for anybody facilitating this to have a very good grasp on the nervous system itself and how to support regulating a nervous system, because it can be quite jarring, even the most beautiful ceremony or psychedelic experience in the world, because it shifts so much in you can be quite dysregulating for your system. Right? Right. Totally. Yeah, there's there's definitely a bit of a, a bad reputation in this, well, in this space and in pharma more generally of sort of bashing some things that get bad press, for example. So I'm thinking of the classic example is, in my eyes, SSRIs and antidepressants, right? So SSRIs and antidepressants can be really terrible for some people. However, they do work for some people. And, you know, that proportion of people is relatively small, but that is a, a pathway that is 
available to those that it works for. And you know what? It works for them great. They should not be shamed into thinking that they're bad people for using that as a Medicaid pathway in the same way that we wouldn't want to see anyone shamed for using this as a, as a pathway to get better and to heal. So and I'm completely with you. And yeah, you touched on something else when we were talking about sort of if you could change the world or if you had power to change the laws. And one of those you mentioned was spirituality. Now, I guess I would be remiss if I didn't bring up one of our audience questions today. So today we have a, a question from someone called Riley in Colorado. And they've asked, uh, in a group psychedelic setting that includes people from different spiritual backgrounds, um, how can you accommodate the various spiritual needs of that group without potentially alienating others? Riley, I love this question so much. So thank you for this really beautiful question. I'll start by saying that I have facilitated for uh, Hasidic Jewish people, for uh, Jehovah's Witness and her daughter, um, and for Catholics and Christians and, gosh, yeah, Muslims and people who identify as atheists and people who identify as seeing plants as gods. I, I think I fall into that category myself in some respects. And, you know, ultimately, every everyone is welcome. And one of the ways that I accommodate people from various backgrounds in one space is by setting a container in which there are very clear parameters around safety and allowance of self-expression and also not forcing or imparting my own belief systems on anyone. And, you know, I think it's really important, like when you become a facilitator, which I, I think, you know, a lot of this podcast is about, right? Becoming a facilitator. When you become a facilitator, it's really, really important to check in with yourself about your own agenda. You know, many people come into this space with hidden agendas unbeknownst to them, you know, because they haven't done a lot of the deep work on themselves to find that, you know, we've, we've many of us have heard the phrase, the wounded healer, that they've decided to pursue this path because they themselves, you know, want healing. And listen, like, I don't believe any of us has ever, quote unquote, fully healed. And also there are things because like you peel back the layers over and over and you learn yourself more and more. But there are also things that we can do in order to make sure those ulterior motives are not the underlying purpose for us to be holding space for others. And so I would say that like one of those things is just to make sure that like you don't have an agenda. When you're holding space, it is truly that you're setting a container for people to do their own healing work. I really, I can get on my soapbox about this a little bit, but I'm like very, very averse to the word healer. It really, me, like it really, really bothers me. And when one of my clients says, oh, this is my shaman, this is my healer. I'm like, no, no, no. You are your own healer. You are your own shaman. Like I don't call myself that unless I'm talking about the work I do with myself. Then I'm then I'm a healer if I'm talking about my own work. But otherwise, I am simply holding a container and sharing practices and skill sets through my training and my education and and what I've been gifted by my teachers and my mentors. So you can do your own healing work. And it it took me a while to like really unwind the parts of me that had those agendas and hidden hidden underlying motives that I was not aware of, you know, they were, you know, that's shadow work, man. That was me like getting into some deep stuff. And so I would say that, you know, Riley, to really answer your question, it's about creating that really safe space without any agenda other than safety and comfort and openness. No, certainly. And, and you know, I'm actually going to sort of expand a little bit on Riley's question and pose a part two to you for this, because I, I think that's a great answer. And I want to hear a bit more. So I guess, from a pragmatic perspective, what should potential facilitators 
ask their clients to become aware of their client's spirituality without being sort of too abrasive or offensive or this sort of thing? Yeah. Well, the first thing I, I actually have like a pretty long intake form that is like, you know, medical history, psychological history, but also spiritual practices, if any, and anything else that they would like to share with me, you know, about the way that they were raised, any rituals that they might have, any aversions to any rituals that they might have. I think I, I may have shared with you that I had a consult with someone today who shared with me that they are quite sensitive to cult indoctrination, which is the first time I've heard that and also makes a lot of sense. You know, when a lot of people are beating a drum about one thing, it, it might seem a little bit scary. And so really just to ask about background and then also asking, what are the things that help you feel safe? Mm-hmm. No, that's right? really good advice. Yeah, practical advice for the people there. And, and you know, the introduction of sort of things like intake forms is really a useful barrier to allow people to sort of, or sort of opposite of a barrier, really allow people to give that information over without feeling sort of intense with the whole experience. So I think it's going to be really useful to our facilitators going forward. And it's something that we have to be aware of. And we try and incorporate some of those teachings into the Changa Institute School. And actually, at some point, it would be great to work with you a little bit closer to Changa and to have you present at a couple of our yeah. classes. I actually have been talking to Sam about being a guest lecturer. So I'm really looking forward to to doing that and hopefully much more collaborations in the future. I really love what you guys are doing. And I think it's really wonderful to be able to, you know, again, in the vein of having a container where people can actually learn and feel safe in doing so. It's really important. No, definitely. Well, let's definitely make that happen. Well, um, we're going to get Sam on the podcast at some point. So all of the students that have heard Sam before, you know who that is. And um, yeah, just thanks again for coming on the show today. If there's any last thoughts you want to leave with our audience, I'll leave that to you now. But otherwise, it's been great having you. And maybe we even get you back on at some point. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I would be honored to be back on. I really thank you for the time. And I think, you know, the last thing I would say is like, I think... I hesitate to say that we're having a psychedelic renaissance just because I want to honor a conversation I had with my father who was like, we had, we started the psychedelic renaissance, you know, his people time, right? Although I believe it started thousands of years ago with the plants talking to people and showing them how to connect with spirit and with themselves. But that's a whole different story. Maybe we can talk (laughs) about that next time. But I would say, you know, like as we're seeing this psychedelic resurgence and we're seeing it come in a new way go easy on yourself. Like there's no rush. I think a lot of people are like, I have to do this now. I'm going to miss the boat. We are, yes, things are moving quite quickly. And also there's a lot that has yet had, has yet to unfold here. Like a lot that has yet to unfold. And so if you're not sure if this is your calling or you're curious, take your time, ask questions, have experiences. Like there's no need to force something And I really, really believe that the more that we can attune to our bodies and our nervous systems, the more we get answers about what we are supposed to do with our lives. So I will leave you with that for the time being. And James, thank you so much for having me. No, that's that's fantastic. I think that's an excellent place to end. Well, for anyone else that's interested in asking a question to a future guest, please send your questions over to james at changinstitute.com. And I will yeah, make sure to ask our future guests, which I think we'll get Evacheska back on at some point in the future because we need to touch on a few other topics that we missed out on today. But thank you very much for your time and I will see you soon. Thanks so much, James. Take care. Cheers. Okay, bye-bye. If you are interested in becoming a psilocybin facilitator yourself, then please check out the website at www.changerinstitute.com.